This is the Young China Watchers podcast. My name is Sam Colomby. Young China Watchers is a global community of young professionals. We organize events in our 10 chapters around the world to foster the next generation of China thought leaders. My guest for today is Chris Chang. Chris is the editorial director for Hong Kong Free Press, a non-profit English language media platform. As most of you will know, Hong Kong is going through one of the worst crises in its near 200-year history. In June, a million people marched against an extradition bill that would allow Hong Kongers to be tried in mainland China, where the legal system is subject to Communist Party rules. Since then, the movement has escalated, as excessive force by Hong Kong's police and an insensitive ruling class has fueled anger. Incidents like alleged collusion between police and triad gangsters in Yunlong or indiscriminate violence on subway commuters by tactical police units in Prince Edward are convincing even moderate observers that something is definitely rotten in the city-state. Carrie Lam, the head of government, may have withdrawn the extradition bill, but doubts about her sincerity and outrage over alleged police brutality mean her gesture has little effect. Some even compare Miss Lam's olive branch to Mao's Hundred Flowers campaign, a deceptive peace offering only to identify the opposition and mark them for prosecution. It's hard to put a start date on the current movement, but it's fair to say many of today's grudges stem from the failed umbrella movement that brought Hong Kong to a standstill in 2014. The city's largest peaceful civil disobedience effort to date ended in disappointment when after three months of occupation, Roads were cleared by bailiffs, meeting little resistance by the burnt-out protesters. None of their demands were met. For many Hong Kongers, the lesson was clear. Peaceful protesting can only take us so far. It's in the wake of that umbrella movement that Chris Cheng was part of a group of journalists who saw the need for an independent English-language press. Someone needed to independently cover the pro-democracy movement. I started by asking Chris how he experienced the calm years between 2014 and the current storm. If you asked me before June, I think the answer would be from the sort of failure, as some people call it, in 2014, to the failure in early 2019 when everything was pretty dull, pretty depressing. People get disqualified, people are all going to jail or ready to go to jail. This is this kind of feeling. Um, but that soon changed after June 9th that uh, I thought after a million people marched and the government did not give any concession. The usual response from, from me as a journalist at that point was, well, probably it would be passed then, because that was the case with several other things like uh, John Checkpoint, with the house rule changes. But what changed was that at the night of June 9th, after people marched, and then there was this statement from the government saying they would continue with the bill, uh, people actually tried to storm uh, the Legislative Council. Not successful, but that, that changed everything, as in people were willing to risk it, even though they know they may go to jail for a long time, they may lose the job, they may lose the education, all that. But at that point, I think people just simply thought, that's it, I'm not going to 
tolerate the government anymore. So June 9th was a very significant point in changing everything that's been going on from 2015 to 2019, uh, from a very sort of depressing state of the city towards something people thought, let's do something. And the week after that, two million people showed up. I, I agree, I thought it was going to fizzle out like, like all the other protests have so far, but millions of people are still involved. Where is this going? I think there's this term, maybe call it the reverse of the um, public opinion. Uh, when people were sick of violence, when people were sick of uh, tear gas every night uh, outside the streets, uh, so that people would not go out anymore. Um, but that simply didn't happen. So let's do a thought experiment as in if there were no longer street movements next weekend and next, next weekend and so on, will people forgive the government for what they have done or will they forgive the police for what they have done since June? The answer is probably no. There have been so many video uh, articles, photos, comics about all the things. We live in a very information age. People don't easily forget that, that feeling, especially when it's physical, when you have been outside uh, inhaling tear gas, getting pepper spray, getting pushed by the police, getting shouted at the police. Um, it's, it's not easy to change someone's opinion at this point, I think. No matter sort of like how violent a minority can be, there will still be millions of people, even though they're not on the streets, they will still be like, I don't like this government. And that is very hard to change. So even though each time when you have sort of more aggressive uh, action on the streets with just maybe hundreds of people, like you said, uh, if you call for a peace rally, it's safe to say there will be a million people, two million people, until the government agrees to some of the demands. The thing you said, a reverse of public opinion, that was also the tactic last time in 2014, right? They, they, you know, just wait it out, wait till people get annoyed. And But this time, their, their strategy is so different of the government, of the police. There was, I think there was tear gas twice in 2014, and now it's just day after day after day. Why do you think that is? Why, why has their response changed so much? That's exactly one, one of the issues, because uh, in, in 2014, most people remember the tear gas and then the so-called Mong Court Dark Night on October 3rd when a group of suspected triads attacked protesters in, in Mong Court. But that's almost it. Other, other than that, the CY Lung government at the time chose to leave them alone until two months later using a legal means to kick them out. And people were truly annoyed by the fact that the roads were occupied. That was true. But this time, it's not a uh, standstill occupation anymore. It's not uh, a day-by-day -day occupation someplace, but different weekends going to different places that learn from that mistake. And then the, the effect on residents are, are sort of lower in, in this sense. And then also, it's not just one or two instances of violence that people remember. They, they have like a, something like an Afghan calendar with, on, on which day some kind of attack happened, either tear gas, either triads, either some other kind of so-called police brutality. So people have things, they have a lot of images, they have a lot of scenes that they could remember to push them to go out 
once again, like like this week, just today, we have three, four incidents in one day. You'll be sure that on Saturday, on Sunday, there will be a lot of people marching. It's a recurring theme on like 2014. You just remember the first few days of violence and so on. But this time it's day by day, week by week. The image of police brutality or government inaction being reinforced time and time again. Let's talk about the Yunlong incident when the police is accused of having gone very soft on, on the triads, on the gangsters that were knifing and beating up protesters in, in, the, in the subway station. Because Hong Kong's police, Asia's finest, they always had this amazing, um, perfect image of being, you know, being on the side of the public and being there to protect the public in one of the safest cities in the world. And even when they were deployed against, against the protesters, you know, there was always that sort of that idea that they were being used by the government, that they were a tool by sort of a, a scared government who didn't want to face up to the problems in a political way. But now, this time around, it's, it's actively the police that people are angry with. It's the police brutality that upsets people the most, almost. How did that happen? Um, it's really weird to see police fans passing through these groups of hundreds of people in Yunnan with weapons in white shirt. Why didn't they take any action? Um, why didn't uh, reinforcement come come earlier? Why did it take 39 minutes? So there's a lot of questions that, that are legitimate and people still haven't got their answers. Uh, it's also about the government, I don't know why, choosing to have a police press conference every day. Maybe the original ten- intention was to make the police more proactive in uh, giving out the, the message to the public. But now it seems like the police co- press conference has become a daily joke to reporters because they keep asking the same questions every day. Can you give us an answer on July 21st? Can you give us an answer on August 11th? It keeps on repeating and repeating with new issues coming up every day. So it's becoming a, a PR crisis for the police. And a PR crisis for Carrie Lam as well, right? How How secure is her position given the protesters demands for her to resign. I guess that depends on Beijing and the problem is Beijing works like a black box so it's really hard to know. We have had sort of several deadlines. In June people thought that maybe they could pressure the government ahead of the G20 then there will be changes. Nothing happened. Uh, in, in July people thought maybe they could do something before July 1st or before the end of the month. Uh, even They even stormed the Legislative Council Nothing happened. Then this month in August, people thought maybe they could do something before the Beidai He meeting. Again, it seems to be a black box. We don't know what happened. There are pieces and bits and pieces everywhere. We can sort of piece them together. But we, we still don't really know who's making the shots, why, what will be the plan. No one knows. You could almost say the same for the protesters because there's no leadership, so nobody really knows what the strategy is going to be. Do you have any idea where they might try to take it next? Um, I think if you look at, say, uh, the LIHKG forum, we call it Lin Dan, um, the, the strategy itself is very messy. Uh, it's sort of like a very raw democracy. Someone makes an idea uh, on on the forum, and then you upvote it or downvote it. If it's, it's good, if it's a good idea, then it got pushed up to the very top, 
if it's a bad idea, it sinks. Uh, but is the one uh, promoted by most of the people a good idea? Sometimes it may not be. Uh, like at the airport, is it a very good idea to block tourists from, from entering? Uh, some people would say yes, some people would say no, but that's certainly debatable. But I think it's more interesting when comparing t- with 2014 or 2016 is, is that because there's no central command, there are actually more ideas coming up. It's a very interesting trial and error process in which uh, they, they learn very quickly. Unlike the government, which seems to be very slow in response, uh, so comparatively, protesters change the tactic very, very quickly to keep up with the current situation. We've all seen the, the video of the, the army in Shenzhen and the propaganda video that came with it. Do you think that's just a scare tactic or do you think that's something Beijing is seriously considering? I got asked that question a lot of times in international media. I think I've developed sort of a standard answer as in, first, we need to consider that the PLA is in Hong Kong for 22 years. So if they really want to come out in action, all they need is uh, a document from the Hong Kong government asking Beijing if they can do that. So that is always a threat. It doesn't really change when there are troops in, in Shenzhen. Maybe the difference is that if they don't want to use the army itself, so maybe uh, armed police or military police in, in Shenzhen would be better a better choice so it doesn't look like soldiers. Uh, storming into Hong Kong to to kill people, but the nature of the threat itself doesn't change. So it is it a scare tactic. I think so. It's more about the visual than the actual execution. Because let's say if you are a Beijing official thinking how to deal with the protest, you you don't really need a a team of soldiers or armed police to march into Hong Kong. Maybe you need several undercover agents, instigators, or other sort of fake news campaign, maybe like a Russia-Ukraine-style conflict. You don't need actual force, really. So it's a Sunjin armed police presence just for show, maybe by that sense, yes. To what extent is that propaganda campaign, the, the fake news campaign you're talking about, going on? Maybe we can go back to 2014 when um, the first response from sort of the pro-Beijing side to Occupy Central was that let's have a counter campaign with all the new websites, uh, silent, so-called silent majority, uh, Hong Kong people speak out, these kind of websites. Are they entirely fake news? Not really. It, it's more like they use the existing news for their own interpretation. In Figures I've seen actually in, in some way, some of these websites are even more popular than some of the major newspapers in Hong Kong. They, they run the social media really well and it has evolved into, say, uh, infiltrating into small groups of uh, WhatsApp groups, WeChat groups. So a lot of times you don't see them on Facebook, Twitter anymore. That's not even the main issue anymore. It's, say, uh, a local person's mother, father, that generation receiving all the fake news or misleading news on, on the WhatsApp or WeChat groups. And because it's not public, it's even harder for people to diffuse it because you don't even know where it comes from for the first place. Is there a way for you as a member of the press 
to debunk that, to go against that disinformation? You said it's getting really hard because it's, it's not that obvious anymore, but what do you do? I think if I have a solution, I should, run, I should win the local prize. But um, there, there are two uh, directions looking at it. Uh, one is to uh, improve the media literacy so you only trust the, the trustworthy media, but that's hard to do. The second way is to uh, teach people the skills for them to act sort of like a journalist, to challenge the, the pictures, the stories themselves. But it's also a very difficult task because normally people actually, like journalists, are not that skeptical. If your auntie, your sister, uh, your cousin send you something, you might as well just believe it because you don't usually challenge your relatives. So, so that's the difficult part. There are perfect solutions to that, but people are not perfect. So that's a problem. We've already said that both, both Beijing and, and the protesters are a bit of a black box, but going into September now, what, what does September look like? Do you think Beijing is going to keep trying to change public opinion? Do you think protesters are going to try and escalate? Where do you see it going? From what we have learned this weekend, uh, public opinion does not change easily. If you have a million people believing the government did the wrong thing in June, there will still be a million, two million people uh, or even more uh, in, in August, in September, believing the government did the wrong thing. Because it's hard to erase that image. I, I couldn't really think of any campaign Beijing or the Hong Kong government could really have changed that. Um, I think the difference from, from June and, and August or September would be the form of the protest. Uh, people do have to discuss whether they, they want more aggressive protests or keep on peaceful marching, peaceful rally every, every weekend. We, we just know that there will still be a lot of people very eager, very passionately be in the movement until probably at least October 1st. So far, we don't know what the form will be. We just know it's very hard for the movement to die down. If you would like to understand what's going on in Hong Kong, apart obviously from your own publication, what, what would you recommend we read to stay informed? Um, Stan News, if you know uh, Chinese language online media, uh, it's known for its very, very, very long features. So up to maybe like 300,000 Chinese words for one features. But they have very good ones, say, uh, on the fall of the Democratic Party, on the rise of localism, uh, on, on other topics such as, uh, what else, Ed education, uh, gender, that kind of thing. So in interestingly, if you look at the, the people they, they've interviewed in 2015, 2016, um, in, in some way it's sort of predictive why this is happening. Stand news. Stand news. Yeah. Okay, well, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your... I know you're very busy. <laughs> I, I wish I'd be so busy, really. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually got to go to, like, the holiday. I really want to thank Chris for making the time to meet with me. You can find his work at hongkongfp.com. It's a Hong Kong free press website. 
or at ChrisLC on Twitter. For more information on our organization, go to youngchinawatchers.com. Come join us at a chapter near you. My name is Sam Colomby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions.